Good morning. Welcome to Parkwood this morning. I hope you're excited. I'm excited. I've been, I've been waiting on Galatians for a long time, and so I'm excited to tell you to turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 5 as we begin our expositional study through the book of Galatians. And if you're new with us, that means we, we look at every verse and sometimes every word and uh, seek to see what God has said Hope you've got a couple things with you. You should have sermon notes back in front and also some information what's going on over the next couple weeks. New series, very important in the life of Parkwood and the life of God's church. So stand with me. Galatians 1, beginning in verse 1. We read, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. And ever. Amen. Pray with me. Lord, it is our prayer that you would help us understand the intensity and the urgency and the cost that was in Paul's heart and mind as he penned this letter to the churches. For the cost today, Lord. It's not less than it was then. It is your gospel. And so, Lord, speak to your people through your word. May we today give thanks together that we have in our hands the written word of God. Written so we can understand it. We thank you. Using men to stir up God's word among a people. Stir it up in us, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So last week we began our, our celebration of the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago last Sunday. We talked about that. Once you just see some alones that just rise up out of the text today. But remember with me that the Catholic Church had locked the only hope for people in a language that they couldn't understand. The cost was the gospel altogether. And what I need you to see this morning is God began to raise up a people, men, not to lead some kind of revolution, not even to start with to start a reformation. He simply raised up men that began to read the Bible. So, and began to say, is not the church subject to the Word of God? The answer for them was yes. The answer to the church was no. And so a reformation did begin. They dared to think that all people should be able to read God's Word in the language that they could understand. 
these men began to recover something. It is that the only hope for man lies in this book. It has the gospel, the only hope. Freedom. That freedom that we've been singing about. And so one of the marching orders of the Protestant Reformation was post tenebrous Luke's after darkness, light. But you see, in redemptive history, this was the same way. Turn with me to Luke. Luke chapter 1. Redemptive history had a dark age. Do you remember it? And with the birth of John the Baptist, the light was coming. And so his father uttered this prophecy. Pick up with me. Look at verse 76. Luke 1, 76. It says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit among, visit us from on high. Look at verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Just like John the Baptist. Our Protestant brothers turned on the light that the Catholic Church had turned off. And what emerged out of that was this non-negotiable in the Christian faith. That salvation is by the word of God alone. By Christ alone. By grace alone. Through faith alone. And all for the glory of God alone. This is what was recovered and we must never let it go. I want you to see in Galatians, we can't separate this. And there's two big things that we want you. So I want to throw the application right out from the beginning of the overarching point of Galatians for you. It's on your top of your notes. I want you to recognize false gospel for what it is and refute it. I want you to understand the true gospel and be able to articulate it. So if you've got a pen, you need to underline recognize Refute, understand, and articulate. Listen, we are not supposed to be mean believers. We are supposed to be articulate ones. And I just want to tell you today, if I call some false teaching out on the carpet, if I call some false teachers out on the carpet, I am not doing it to be mean. I'm doing it to protect God's church, and I'm doing it to protect you. They're out there today, just like they were in that day. We must stand for the truth. I want you to be able to articulate The gospel. This was Paul's concern, not his reputation. Paul wasn't concerned about his reputation. He was concerned about the clarity of the gospel. And so he writes this book to Galatians, one of the most undisputed books, letters that he ever wrote. Everyone, even the most liberal scholars agree, Paul wrote Galatians. It's an early letter. He wrote it to the churches of Galatia. Galatia is a province. Most likely the southern churches, which meant in Acts 13 and 14 when he did his first missionary journey, these were the churches that he was writing to. This puts this letter about A.D. 48. It's going to be important to remember that in the timeline as this letter unfolds early between Acts 13 and 14 and Acts 15 in the Jerusalem Council. This letter was written. Context is important. Look down with me at verse 6. 6 to 9 says this, that men were harassing the Galatians by preaching another gospel. 
And if you flip over to the end of the book in, in Galatians 6, 12, and 13, you say that these, these opponents of the gospel were insisting on circumcision. In other words, most likely these were what we call Judaizers. They insisted that true believers should observe a Jewish way of life. For them, the, their core text was Genesis 17 that said, if you're going to be God's people, you must be circumcised. And so they insisted on it. And before we just pass them off as another false teachers, we've got to realize that the Judaizers love Scripture. Judaizers believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They would say, we're only obeying Scripture. Paul's not. Listen to this quote. Don't forget, however, that much of the teaching of the Judaizers was right down the line, biblically speaking. They acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. They even acknowledged his death on the cross. They claimed to believe all truths and other Christ, that other Christians believed. And certainly they weren't telling people that they denied the gospel. Instead, they were improving it, adding requirements and standards from the old covenant to the new covenant. But the reality is that as soon as you add anything to grace, you lose grace altogether. There is no middle ground. This is the issue. It's only going to get more intense as the letter unfolds. This drove Paul's concern. This is the context for his intensity of this letter. We're going to see it next week. As he launches into this. But to start with, we want to see... Paul brings some clarity to the gospel calling, to his gospel calling, to the gospel message, and the very purpose of the gospel. So look with me at verses 1 and 2. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. You see, he puts Jesus on the table in his introduction. Verses 1 and verses 3, he puts Jesus out there. Verses 1 and verses 4, he puts Jesus to work on the table from the beginning. Clarity is what he's bringing. He said, make no mistake, I was called by Christ alone. See, this is, you can feel it, can't you? A little bit defensive from the beginning. There is, because they're attacking. These false teachers are attacking his apostleship so they might undermine his, the gospel. So he's defensive from the beginning. Turn with me to Romans 1, 1. You could nearly turn to any of Paul's letters in the introduction and see this. Romans 1, verse 1. He makes sure that everyone knows that he was called by God to be an apostle. When in Romans 1, 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So if you ask Paul, how did your conversion and call to ministry happen? He tells us right here. First, he tells us how it didn't happen. What does he say? He says, in verse 1, not from men nor through man. He's going to go on to say a little bit later, I didn't get it from any human, including Peter. Including the, the three. I didn't get it from them either. You remember Acts 9? Acts 9, 1-7. You might want to turn there. We're not going to read it. I just want you to remember the very clear conversion of Saul to Paul. Remember? You look at verse 1, what, breathing threats and murder? That's what he was doing. He was a good Jew. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He hated Christians. He believed he was doing God a favor. And what happened? 
While he wasn't looking for Jesus, Jesus knocked him on his face on the ground and blinded him. And Jesus found him. He says, oh no, make no mistake. I was called by Christ alone. Undisputed. He uses from or through. In other words, write this down. The gospel call doesn't have a human source. Doesn't have a human source. So how did it happen? Well, look at the text. It says, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He uses there, notice, through but not from. In other words, I was called by Christ alone. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, remember he said, Have I not seen Christ? Remember, this is one of the qualifications. You're not an apostle if you had not seen Christ. He says, Have I not seen him? Am I not an apostle? But he's making more of a case here than just his conversion. He said, I am called by Christ alone, but I'm also commissioned by Christ alone. Paul loves calling. He uses that word all the time. We're going to get into that word next week. He uses the word calling here over and over in his letters. I want you to attach one thing to calling. We're going to attach something else next week. Grace. Acts 9 verses 15 to 16. We need to see this as part of his calling. But the Lord said to him, Acts 9 verse 15, The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Christ alone saved him. Christ alone commissioned him. And by the way, he does you too. Romans 1 again. If you still got that, flip back to it. Romans 1, 1 to 6 says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Now listen to the gospel clarity from the beginning of Romans, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power and according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, that's how he described Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see the gospel clarity? Now, verse 5. Through whom we have received what? Grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among the nations, including who? You who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Paul is called and commissioned by grace alone through Christ alone. But why? Look at verse 1. Why does he bring up the the resurrection here? Do you see it? Who raised Him from the dead? What's the significance of that? I want you to do something. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians. I'm going to, I'm going to throw some Old Testament scriptures on the screen. I want you to have in your lap 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23. I want you to see that. But I want you to down look up. I want you to look at the significance of the resurrection in this text based off the Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 26, 19 on the screen says this, Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Daniel 12, verse 1 says, And at the time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been seen there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book. Hmm, there's a book. 
Verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life and some to everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, brothers and sisters, look in your lap to 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and let's see the significance of the resurrection. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, and by a man also the resurrection of the dead. For in, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Verse 23, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The resurrection is the beginning of a new age. The old is gone. The new has come. The resurrection is the beginning. It is a new deliverance. It is a new exodus. It is a new age. And the Judaizers were trying to turn back the clock. Turn back the clock in salvation and add the old circumcision and the Mosaic law to something that was new. So the resurrection is important because it is the beginning of something. Of something that says don't go back. So there's a clarity of the column. There's also a clarity of the message. Look at verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he's already hammering out the Trinity here. Puts Christ, not only the Father, but also Christ here, as the source of both grace and peace, pointing to Christ's divinity. And here is a prayer. There's a prayer because there's a danger, and there's an order to the prayer. So what does he pray? He's praying that these believers would be showered by grace and peace. Turn with me to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, 6. This combines, this word grace here combines two Old Testament words. The word we normally think of when we think of grace, but also this Old Testament word, two words, steadfast love. In other words, grace is God's loyal love. Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. This is the Lord talking about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting iniquity on the fathers, on the children, and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So he's praying for grace and peace. This is not just a meaningless introduction because there is an imminent danger for these believers. An imminent danger. You see, the danger is they're about to try to add to grace. And when you add to grace, you deny grace. This is what he's going to go on to tell us. To add denies. To add nullifies. This is the danger. This is imminent. They're there. So Paul is praying in the midst of a real imminent danger. And he puts this in order. Grace to you and peace from God. The order is important. No grace, no peace. Where does it come from? Look at the text. From God alone. Do you see the alones? You see, this is why the reformers were simply reading their Bible. When you read it, Christ alone and grace alone is what leaps off the page. 
Peace comes by God's grace alone. There's no other way to get it. On the screen, Ezekiel 37, 26, you see peace is a fulfillment of what God has always promised. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Verse 27 should ring familiar to you because that's exactly what the Lord says in Revelation 21. I will bring something. And this, this new covenant is a covenant of peace. Look at the word everlasting. Isaiah 54.10, For the mountains may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. This was where it was always headed. Jesus Christ and Him alone brought a covenant of peace. The danger, they were in danger of going back to doing it by works. Going back to something that was never intended to be eternal. This is the new, the eternal, the old was temporary. And he's saying, listen, no grace, no peace. I want you to have peace. So God, shower your grace on your people. What does this peace look like when it walks and talks? Turn with me to Ephesians 2, 12. Today, and I wish we could spend more time on it, is Orphan Sunday. Important today that I want to just point this out to you. What does this peace look like? Ephesians 2, 12 says, remember, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and with God in this world, Paul's. That's what it looks like to not have peace. You are separated, you are alienated, you are strangers, you have no hope, and you are without God. That is no peace. But look at verse 13. But now, how, who, in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been what? Brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. That's how peace comes. For he himself, you see this? For Christ alone is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down the flesh dividing wall of hostility. Between us and God, the wall has been broken down. In other words, peace just doesn't look like God's not going to kill you. Peace looks like God adopts you. Is that not why 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Peace looks like you being adopted into the family. And today on Orphan Sunday, it is worth remembering that no one gets into the family of God unless through adoption. Nobody. You're not God. So that means you must be adopted. Clarity in the gospel. Clarity in the message. And clarity in the gospel purpose. I want you to see this. Look at verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. I want you to see, to understand the purpose, we must not miss the root. What is the root of grace? The root of grace is the cross. 
That's the root of it. Who gave himself for our sins. It's the root of grace. Grace and peace are rooted in Christ's self-giving at the cross. You see, this is the problem. The Galatians are only entranced by circumcision because they have forgotten the cross. So right from the beginning, he's putting it at the forefront of this letter. Don't you forget the root of grace. It is a bloody cross. Christianity is not some self-help, self-improvement, try harder, do better. As John Stott says, Christianity is in fact a rescue religion. It is for those who can't. The purpose of the cross is twofold. Delivery and glory. Don't miss this. Don't miss the main point here at verse 4. The cross is the will of God. And I am oftentimes confused by so many people who deny God's sovereignty and ask questions about the sin in creation and yet accept the cross without even blinking. Where the cross was the only time when an innocent man was slaughtered. Slaughtered by God. And listen, if it wouldn't have happened, you would still be dead in your sins. Such is the power and the mystery of the cross. The cross delivers us from the present evil age. Turn with me to Matthew 13, 47. Matthew 13, look down with me at verse 47. You see, there's something coming on this present evil age, and we must be delivered from it, or we will not. There's only two options. Verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace in the place there will be torment. And this is where this present evil age is headed. But we, through the cross, through Christ alone, by His grace alone, revealed at the cross alone, have been delivered from that. That's future deliverance, isn't it? Future deliverance. But there's present deliverance and Michael, we've been singing about it this whole time, haven't we? Future deliverance. Ephesians 1, 21 tells us that Christ is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name in this age and also in the one to come. So this is not only future delivery, this is present delivery. Present delivery from the penalty of sin and present delivery from the power of sin in our actual life. This is what Romans 12, 2 says. So therefore, because of everything that he said in Romans, he says, Romans 12, don't be conformed to the evil in this present age. Listen to me this morning. I want you to listen to this quote. It's sort of wordy. I'm going to try not to mess it up. Luther speaking about the sins of the Catholic Church. This white devil 
which forceth men to commit spiritual sins, that they may sell them for righteousness, is far more dangerous than the black devil, which only enforceth them to commit fleshly sins, which the world acknowledges to be sins. You see what he's saying? He said there is a white devil, and there is a black devil. And we have no problem with the, calling the black devil in the church the black devil. Those who sleep around, black devil. Sensuality, we, we talked about in Second Peter, remember? That was what their false teachers were doing. Peddling, peddling the, the black devil into the church. Said Most people even understand, even the pagans understand that that's wrong. But there is a more dangerous sin. It is the white devil. This is what he's saying. It's going on in the Catholic church. It's going on here. It's spiritual sins. When we take that which is wrong and peddle it for righteousness. We condemn fornication. But we tell an eight-year-old child to say a sinner's prayer and dub them saved. We must not set anything before people other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's what we said in front of an eight-year-old. It's the same thing we said in front of an 80-year-old. We do not set a formula. This is what the church did. Don't set a formula. Set the cross. We set the cross and Him crucified. This is what we said in front of people. The cross delivers. And only it delivers. Listen. You can assent to information about Christ and not know Christ. You can take a class. You can pass catechism. You can be baptized. You can pray a prayer. You can sign a card. But until you see Jesus Christ and Him crucified, and you in light of that, you have not seen Christ. Cross, the cross delivers. You see, the cross is God's intrusion into this wicked age. He intruded into it. Turn with me to Galatians 6.14. And let's be reminded, brothers and sisters, that he didn't have to. The dangerous false teaching that you would buy into at its inception is to think somehow that you're entitled to grace. As soon as you buy into that false teaching, you are headed for false teaching outright. We do not deserve grace. If we did, it would nullify grace. Galatians 6.14 says, But far be it to me to boast except in what? In the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. By which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This is how you motivate people to holiness. It's with the cross. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, boasting only in the cross, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. Brothers and sisters, understand this clearly in Paul's argument that he's going to be making. The law reflects the old age. The cross reflects the new age. The law pointed somewhere. The law pointed to the cross. The law pointed to our desperate need that we can't do it. And so Christ took on flesh and He lived a perfect life and He died atoning death and He rose again. 
This is why Galatians in chapter 1 and chapter 6, its bookends, is the grace of the cross. The ultimate purpose of the cross is not your rescue. The ultimate purpose of the cross is the glory of God. And verse 4 and verse 5, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Why did Jesus Christ die on that tree? He died on that tree out of obedience to the will of his Father. That's why he died on that tree. Because of that, you've experienced his grace. What is the chief end of God? To glorify himself. This is where we must begin, brothers and sisters. Why is that so important? Because the chief end of man is to glorify God. We're created in His image. We're the chief end of man is to glorify God, and by doing that, to enjoy Him forever. This is how we enjoy. There's no other way. So, have you experienced grace and peace through Christ alone? Just what we need to ask ourselves this morning. Galatians 1, 3, and 4 is my prayer for you. has been my prayer for myself. The grace and peace from God our Father might be showered upon us. This is just what he's going to say next week. I'm praying for this because you're deserting. You're turning. You're walking away. The cross, brothers and sisters, is the only place this morning to find peace. Here's... The question of the world to start with, as we live in the world and we oftentimes are influenced by the world, if the world somehow has come of age and they believe they have, they have cast out the bondage of of religion, don't need that crutch, you do, cast it off, then why is there always this low-level guilt in the hearts of men and women who cover it up day after day with addictions, indulgences, and just simply staying busy. Where's the peace? If the world has outgrew Christ and outgrew religion, where is the peace? There is another danger. I don't say this out of meanness. I say it out of protection. When someone like the Joel Osteens of the world stands up amongst thousands and declares peace without a cross, there is no peace. That's a false peace, brothers and sisters. It's false. It's false. It's like the Ezekiel 13, 16. Do you remember when the false teachers was going out and judgment was coming on God's people and the false teachers were saying, peace, peace. There's not judgment coming. And God says, they don't have peace with me. Peace only comes through Christ. And you can't declare peace to people if you don't first declare the cross. There is no peace without the cross. Romans 5, 1 through 11. Romans 5, 1 through 11. My prayer for you, if, you don't, if you've never experienced the peace through Christ, that you would go home and meditate. And even now, that God would... Make this a reality in your life. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I will build this more later, brothers and sisters, but make no mistake this morning. There is a reason I haven't mentioned faith yet. There's a reason. Grace comes from Christ alone. 
We see it at the cross. Faith is a gift that flows out of His grace. And you neglect His grace, you will make a work out of faith. We start with Christ. This revealed in Scripture. And we start with grace. And then we praise God when He pours into our hearts the Holy Spirit. And gives us the gift of faith. Verse 2. Through Him we have obtained access by faith into His grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that. But we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that the sufferings produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put to shame because God's love has been poured out. Listen to this. God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us for while we were still weak. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's us. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person even one would dare to die. But God shows His love for us. And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. It says, therefore, we now have been justified by His blood. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. How much more will we be reconciled by His life? Much more than that, we also rejoice in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. So how do I experience that grace and peace? Do you recognize the depth and the gravity of your sin? Have you realized, have you seen it today? The sacrificial love of Christ manifested on, at the cross and through the resurrection. I'm not asking if you can say it from memory. I'm asking, can you see it? And if you see it, you trust in that. You trust in that. Jesus Christ crucified, resurrected from the dead. You put your trust in that. Don't add anything to it. Trust in that. His person, His work. The promise is this in verse 5. God's love will be poured into your hearts through the Holy Spirit. And it will be given to you. So believers, are you experiencing the grace and peace through Christ alone, like right now? If we say yes, could we be honest for a few minutes just as believers? Why do we constantly experience guilt, fear, doubt, depression? Do these things constantly characterize your life? Do I con am I constantly doubting my salvation? Am I constantly living under the guilt of my past sins? Could This is our prayer for growth groups. It would just be a place where people could be real. Do we all struggle with guilt? Do we all struggle with depression? Do we all struggle with our fears? Do we all just get tired? Yes. But what do we do? Go to the cross. That's what we do. Cross is not something you come to for one time in salvation and then grow in maturity beyond it. We never quit clinging to the cross. You see, it is the cross where Christ bore our sins. He bore our guilt. He bore all those, all those sins. And He went into the ground and resurrected. And when He resurrected, He didn't have them. He paid for it. He not only forgave it, He removed it. So they don't exist. And so if He doesn't, 
If he paid for it and he came out not carrying it, why should I carry it? That means I must fight with the cross. I, I have no need to carry the sins of my past around in my present. Why? Because Christ paid for them on the cross. Listen to me. This is why many of us are spiritually stagnant. Because the devil has bought into this false idea that you need to forgive yourself. No, you need to cling to the cross and realize he's already forgiven it. And he's the only one that matters. This is Christianity that gives us peace right now. Fanny Crosby wrote this. Redeemed, how I love to proclaim it. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed through his infinite mercy. His child... And forever I am. Luther closes our message today. He says these two words, grace and peace, comprehend in them whatsoever belongeth to Christianity. I can sum up Christianity by those two words, grace and peace. He said two more things. I'm going to put it in my own words. He says grace releases sin and peace makes the conscience quiet. Grace contains the remission of sins. And what it looks like when it comes into your life is peace and quiet and a joyful conscience. Listen to this. For peace of conscience can never be had unless sin be first forgiven. Brothers and sisters, if you want peace, if you want a joyful conscience and a quiet soul, come to the cross. He will forgive you. And he will give you peace. Lord, I thank you for your gospel. And Lord, we never get over the fact that we didn't deserve it. And yet, there's nothing to be repaid. There's only a life to be lived in worship. And so, Lord, now, would you receive our worship? As we stand and respond... Lord, I pray that even in the room there's someone here that you have revealed yourself to. And Lord, I pray that you would give them the faith to believe and they would repent, experience your grace and peace. And Lord, there are many of us tired believers in the room that need to be encouraged with your gospel. We need to proclaim the gospel to ourselves this morning and so Lord would would you give us now by your grace a blessed assurance not through our works but through your son receive our worship Lord in Jesus name amen stand with us respond as the Lord Lord